Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today, Dr. Charlotte Dunn joins the show again. On July 26th, 2021, Dr. Dunn joined the show and we had a conversation about what took place in terms of succession after King Alexander III of Macedon's life. And so one of the central figures in Alexander's life was Ptolemy I, who went on and as a result of his life laid the foundation for a dynasty that lasted centuries. And so Dr. Dunn joins the show again today and we're gonna have a conversation about the Ptolemies coming into power. Dr. Dunn is a lecturer in classics, history and classics, in the School of Humanities at the University of Tasmania, based in Australia. She is co-author of the book, Demetrius the Besieger, which was published by Oxford University Press. And Dr. Dunn joins the show today from the state of Tasmania in Australia. Welcome back on the show, Charlotte. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much. Uh, It's great to be joining you once again. I'm yeah, I look forward to another conversation with you, Charlotte, and I enjoyed the last conversation that we had very much. So who were the Ptolemies to create sufficient background? Who were the Ptolemies and what was their significance from a historical perspective? So the Ptolemies were the Ptolemaic dynasty and they ruled Egypt for almost 300 years. So we have a um, succession of kings that uh, all, of course, have the name Ptolemy, um, but also some very famous queens. So quite often when people think about the Ptolemaic dynasty, uh, these famous Egyptian pharaohs, these famous Egyptian queens, um, quite often the one that people recognize or are most familiar with is of course Cleopatra and that would be the famous Cleopatra, um, Cleopatra VII, Philopater, and she was of course the last ruler of this dynasty and this was marks the end of the Ptolemaic period because of course at this point um, with, with the death of of Cleopatra, um, we have the conquest of Rome, so they take over. So essentially the Ptolemy family rules from around 305 to 30 BCE. So quite a significant period of history there. Okay, um, so let's then, uh, so for the most part, we're gonna, we're gonna speak about the, uh, really the early period of their, um, of their of their rise from a political uh, perspective, um, so Ptolemy the first. So let's so let's let's start there, and that that seems to be the kind of the most appropriate place to start, right? In this conversation, Charlotte. Yes, uh, absolutely. So it's it's particularly significant as well because, of course, I've been talking about a ruling family, a ruling dynasty, uh, but it didn't necessarily start out that way. So Ptolemy the first was originally. Ptolemy, son of Largus. Now he was a Macedonian and he was uh, one of the members of uh, Alexander the Great's uh, army, essentially. And actually, he originally didn't have what we might say uh, a massively significant role at the outset of Alexander's campaign. Uh, So just for a little bit of background as well, uh, Ptolemy is 
born, we think, around 367, 366 BCE. He's the son of a woman named Arsinoe and a man called Lagus, or reportedly the son of Lagus. There was a the little bit of a rumour that he might actually have been the illegitimate son of Philip II, who, of course, is, was the king of Macedonia at the time and is the famous father of Alexander the Great. So there was a bit of a rumour. Uh, this likely came in a little bit later, and I can go into that in a bit more detail in a moment. But for all extents and purposes, Ptolemy was a sort of you know a member of the um, Alexander's group. He seems to have been roughly around the same age as Alexander and had known him from childhood. He had varying roles to play in during Alexander's campaign, and he later becomes one of the bodyguards of Alexander. So the Somata Phylarches. Um, so that's referring to that role as a bodyguard. So he did eventually sort of begin to rise to prominence, but he wasn't a, a royal family member, despite maybe some of those rumours around his original parentage. There's some suggestion that his mother might have belonged to that ruling family as well, but essentially this was never going to be destined that Ptolemy would end up a king. Uh, in that respect, it was really Ptolemy's own ambition and what he did in the events after Alexander the Great's death, which was enabled him to create what became an incredibly powerful ruling dynasty that, as I said, lasted for almost 300 years. And uh, it, it could probably be presumed, but I don't want to, I don't want to ask, um, I don't want to ask it like like a, a presumption type question. Where uh, what's what's known about where Ptolemy the first was was born, and is it known? Uh, we are assuming Macedonia. Um, I don't think we have much more by the way of um, any any other evidence for that. Mm -hmm. um, it probably came from. Uh, he may have been brought up in the court and Pala as well, so that would have been um, where the, the royal court was established, um, probably from a young age brought up there, um, but certainly Macedonian in origin. Okay, so in the last episode that we, um, <clears throat> that we did together, uh, that was on succession after Alexander III's uh, life, and we, we covered uh, a whole bunch of ac activities, and now we're zooming in on... Um, on how that relates to Ptolemy. So, so Alexander died in 323. So do you want to cover what, what occurred from uh, Ptolemy's perspective after Alexander's life? Yeah, and that's a really important aspect because Ptolemy was one of those people who uh, didn't necessarily support uh, the heirs that were being put forward there. So in the last episode we discussed there was a bit of a division between those who uh, supported uh, the, the option of Philip Aradeus, who was Alexander's half-brother, but he in some way was not able to rule independently, so it was pretty clear to the army and the generals at the time that whoever controlled Philip Aradeus would be the, the true person who was wielding power there. Um, and then of course we talked about Perdiccas and he wanted Roxanne and uh, well, the, the unborn child of Alexander, who Roxanne was pregnant with at that time, to be the future heir to the empire. So Ptolemy didn't really, uh, he, was, he was certainly not a fan of Perdiccas. It seems that these two were in conflict from very early on. They were sort of acting at cross purposes. Uh, so during the settlement of where they decided who was going to control what and, and what they were going to do, 
I remember we discussed last time they did come to a bit of a compromise where we we're going to have um, a sort of joint rulership under the control of Perdiccas with Craterus also acting as a guardian there, another prominent Macedonian general. Uh, but during this time, during the settlement of Babylon, Ptolemy was made satrap of Egypt. Uh, so he was a governor. That's essentially what that term is referring to. Uh, but he wasn't left to control Egypt solely by himself. There seems to have been, again, due to that conflict with Perdiccas and the two of them having two sort of different ideas of what's going to happen with Alexander's empire, he was not left to his own devices. So there was a person actually installed in Egypt as well, um, this individual called Cleomenes. And this person was also there, possibly to keep an eye on Ptolemy and what he was up to. Uh, this person had previously been in Egypt sort of administrating things uh, during the reign of Alexander. Uh, but we see a very early indication of what Ptolemy is perhaps planning because he, he eliminates this person straight away. Um, Cleomenes, he doesn't get to play a significant role in the subsequent wars and the power jostling between the successes. So uh, Ptolemy eliminates him. Uh, he's not going to um, tolerate any limitations on, on his power there. Uh, but he is situated in Egypt, so he's in a very strategic spot uh, by about, um, you know, 323, 322. He's already sort of situated there. The term satrap, and he said it, um, it's reasonably synonymous with, with governor. What's the, um, what, do you know what the origins of that, of that term is satrap so this is this is coming from uh, a persian term so this is uh how they um, so alexander was very much uh he took the persian system of administration for his massive empire as you can imagine it was pretty substantial it really stretched out and um a satrapy was essentially the, one of the territories that was governed by a satrap selected originally by the persian king but then later by alexander there um so this was uh continued by the successors as well they had um this idea that each one of them would go to a particular geographical territory and would um, administer it. But at this point, um, if we're thinking about the immediate years after Alexander's death, the idea is that they are supposed to be only acting as governors on behalf of the legitimate kings. There's not this idea that they are going to um, rule these places or that they're going to divide up the empire at this stage. Uh, at least I would argue that they're not maybe not pretending, but at least uh, making themselves look as though they are acting as governors, not overstepping at this stage, uh, at least not overtly, um, the, the sort of parameters of that power. Um, so everything is being done in the name of the kings or in the memory of Alexander as though it is what Alexander would have decreed. And, and I'm- Yes, sorry. Oh no, it's okay. It, and I want to I want to follow up on on that thought, and I was I was going to go there um, uh, very very soon, Charlotte. It's like you're reading my uh, mind in this in this conversation because I do want to cover a little bit more the dynamic between uh, Ptolemy being a governor, um, and so what is that what is that dynamic? Because that's very distinct from let's say a term like king, right, or a term like. Pharaoh, right? And so, so I do want to cover that dynamic a little bit more. The, the satrapy, so was Egypt, um, so was Egypt a satrapy then? 
uh, at in this given time and that we're talking about and um, and then uh, let's let's start there was it so what oh yeah so was it a satrapy and what was the geographic demarcation of Egypt at that given time if you were to describe it on a map uh, so at this point uh, to answer your first question yes this would be considered uh, a satrapy of course now Egypt had recognized Alexander as their their ruler so he had a particular um, he, he was recognized as the Pharaoh um, he he included it within his the bounds of his empire. So of course, this is the Macedonian Empire. So at this stage, we would say that Egypt is still um, considered to be, uh, I guess, a, a territory of the Macedonian Kingdom. Of course, this is going to be um, rather fragmented, uh, not much longer down the historical track than this. Um, but yeah, it is essentially where um, Egypt is today, if you're familiar where um, Alexandria is, um, this of course is the city that was founded by Alexander and one of his first, um, possibly not the absolute first, but probably his most significant founding of um, one of his cities. There was a number of Alexandrias, but uh, Alexandria in Egypt, of course, still stands to this day. And it was actually really uh, under Ptolemy's influence and then the subsequent Ptolemies um, that it really became a flourishing um, city, a sort of uh, place that people would come to, a bit of a destination. Uh, Ptolemy really invested in this and he made it into his capital eventually. Uh, so, um, yes, we are considering that to be um, yeah, more or less the boundaries of the Ptolemaic Kingdom or um, Egypt as a satrapy at this stage. Um, later, Ptolemy does make some uh, campaigns into other uh, adjacent regions to sort of gain control of particular strategic points. Uh, but for the most part, I think it would be fair to consider his focus to be primarily on Egypt. And it was really focused on uh, essentially maintaining secure power and control of Egypt, but also a few of the surrounding areas. So um, there would be parts of Syria as well that Ptolemy ventures into at various points. He arrives in Egypt as a sat as as a satrap, mm -hmm. uh, so which is not uh, a a king or pharaoh. So can you speak more about when he's arriving in Egypt? What 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 were the dynamics at play? Was there in the kingdom of Macedon a, uh, a, a, a was there consensus that there was a king at that at that given time? Can you speak more about what that dynamic was, and also what is known or perceived? about um, his, his, his demeanor or um, congeniality maybe is a, is, a, is a term that can work in this context around the whole situation. Is it known if, if, he, if he was supportive of the decision, uh, was, you know, was content with the decision, etc.? Yeah, there's a few pieces of evidence we can point to to maybe glean a little bit about um, both Ptolemy's uh, personality, perhaps, and maybe his ambitions also. Um, so at this time during the settlement, we have various uh, prominent members of Alexander's army have been stationed at various points. Uh, we also have some uh, people in Macedonia itself. So Antipater, uh, he was uh, the reg acting as a regent. And uh, Perdiccas, of course, is still at this point um, uh, 
in a pretty prominent position in the army. We have uh, antagonists in um, sort of Asia Minor and um, in uh, Greater Phrygia, these sort of areas he's under control here. Um, we have uh, more or less a acceptance initially of this compromise that they've come to, but we see a pretty early division uh, where people are going to begin to jostle themselves into particular positions of power. And so I think Ptolemy's uh, immediate dispatch of Cleomenes really indicates that he was not going to tolerate uh, what Perdiccas was up to. And I believe we mentioned this in the previous example, uh, previous episode as well, uh, but Perdiccas has sort of been planning that he's going to return to Macedonia with the, uh, the two kings he is making um, varying steps to manipulate himself into positions of power. He has Alexander's body, and he's sort of at the head of the funeral procession, returning to Macedonia. Uh, it seems that Perdiccas was maneuvering himself into a position of power. He has control of the kings. He is intending to marry Philip II's daughter, Cleopatra. So not the Cleopatra I mentioned earlier, but another Cleopatra, this one of the Agia dynasty. Uh, so the sister of Alexander the Great, um, the full sister. He had a few half sisters as well. And it's also worth noting that the burial of the former king is somewhat of an act of legitimacy. So all of this is leading to Perdiccas really being in a very good position, he's going to be connected to the royal bloodline. He is really in a good position here. And Ptolemy is actually able to divert the funeral procession and essentially steals the body of Alexander. So he, he claims that Alexander wanted to be buried in Egypt uh, with his uh, divine father, Zeusimun. So he is able to snatch the body. And uh, this is a a bit of a declaration of, uh, well, a rejected, rejection of Perdiccas's authority and plan, but also a bit of a declaration of war. So this really uh, forces Perdiccas to take action and he has, a, as a result, a rather disastrous attempt to invade Egypt. He's not successful in this. Uh, and as a result, he is actually, uh, so he has a very disastrous crossing of the Nile. And as a result, he loses many men into the water and his generals mutiny and they kill Perdiccas. Uh, so this eliminates one of Ptolemy's uh, most significant rivals at this point. And again, means that Ptolemy is rather secure, at least for the moment in his position in Egypt. Um, and I think this really shows a little bit of insight into what he's planning there. Although, of course, he just got very fortunate that um, Perdiccas's men obviously did not accept his failure with his campaign there. Uh, but some other things that we can consider in terms of reflecting on what do we know about Ptolemy's personality, what can we sort of glean from the sources, uh, it's worth noting that uh, Ptolemy actually wrote a history of Alexander's campaign. So he would have been a very good source, of course, having participated in these events himself and um, you know, knowing Alexander personally and knowing him from, from childhood, it seems, from at least as early as 336 BC. We have a reference to um, Ptolemy's activities at the Macedonian court there. So we know that he wrote this history. And what's significant about that now? It hasn't survived itself, but we know of it through the work of Arian, who, again, composed the history of Alexander, but he used Ptolemy's work as one of his uh, sources for that. And so the 
presentation we get of Perdiccas in particular in Arian's work through Ptolemy, through sort of the filter of Arian, is that Perdiccas is really presented as a rather negative character when he does show up. He's sort of downplayed whatever role he must have had, is kind of diminished somewhat, perhaps you could say. And also he is sort of seen as being, um, at least on one occasion, disobeying orders, that kind of thing. So he's kind of presented not very positively. Ptolemy, on the other hand, gets a few moments of uh, particular glory. We have sort of heroic set piece where Ptolemy is uh, really talks up his own actions and uh, even some things that are contradicted by our other sources. So during Alexander the Great's very famous visit to the Oracle of Amun in the Siwa Desert, uh, every other version that we have of this event tells us that the army was led by birds or by two particular birds sort of leading the way to the oasis so that they could reach the shrine. Uh, but Ptolemy's version has snakes, which is very interesting. So we, we see this as a sign to historians who are looking at these texts that Ptolemy has manipulated the details of his history, possibly to give himself a particular image. He wants to present himself as Alexander's legitimate heir. He wants to present himself very positively. Maybe he wants to present Alexander very positively as well. And so I think there's a sort of sophisticated attempt there to make sure that he shows his good side. And um, yeah, I would say that that reflects somewhat of his personality as far as we can tell. Can you clarify, can you clarify then, Charlotte? Oh, sorry, yeah, please continue if your thought wasn't complete. Uh, I was just going to say one other thing on that. I mentioned that Perdiccas was angling to marry Cleopatra. Now, of course, this didn't work out with uh, Perdiccas being killed. Uh, Ptolemy is another person who is mentioned in connection to this Cleopatra. And so, again, sometimes there's this idea that Ptolemy is quite happy with his ambitions with controlling just Egypt, but it seems that just like the other prominent uh, generals, of Alexander's army, Cleopatra was seen as a bit of a prize in some ways. So being that uh, of royal blood, having the prestige of being Philip's daughter and Alexander's sister, the others were also very interested in creating that marriage connection. So it would have been a bit of a political alliance, but also of course incredibly important for anyone who had ambitions during this time who was seeking to gain control. They want the popularity from the soldiers. They want to sort of have an air of legitimacy added to whatever actions they're doing. So uh, Ptolemy is another person who seems to have made overtures to form this alliance with Cleopatra. But again, and this is probably going to sound like I'm repeating myself here, but we have another unfortunate um, assassination. So it seems that Cleopatra, as she was going to join Ptolemy, um, and we're going forward ahead a little bit in the timeline, but as she was going to join Ptolemy, possibly for this marriage, uh, she was actually killed uh, on the orders of Antigonus. He knew that she would be um, dangerous if she was able to make such an alliance. So. Uh, he made sure that she was eliminated as well. The successes that probably goes without saying were fairly brutal in dealing with any sort of rivalry or threat to their power. So uh, Cleopatra there represents yet another member of that Argia dynasty who was eliminated in these first sort of few years of the successor wars. I want to clarify um, a, a point you made about uh, Ptolemy um, t t taking Alexander's body and and then and then bringing it um 
that that whole that whole experience there, and I think you had mentioned, and please bring it up in your in your response, bringing it to to Egypt. So was he was he uh, a satrap at the time of Egypt? Did he did he go somewhere? Can you describe where where he went, and then he and then he confiscated the 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 body, and then went back to Egypt with it? Is that basically what happened? I think he was able to bribe one of the people that was in charge of this funeral procession to divert the body. Uh, so I don't know that Ptolemy himself was actually physically present here. Now, at this point, yes, he is still uh, a satrap, I suppose you would say. Uh, you might be consider him also a general. He has his own sort of army. He has people who are supporting him. But yes, I would say that um, we're still considering him a satrap at this stage. And in fact, they would not be confirmed in, with royal titles uh, for quite some time. Now, our sources sort of suggest that they have been acting as kings and everything but name. But the actual process of going from this sort of governor on behalf of the legitimate kings to actually being explicit that they have assumed the diadem, assumed the title of Basileus doesn't happen for quite some time. So we actually don't see that until 306 BCE, and that was the Antigonids first, so Demetrius and uh, his father Antigonus Monothalus. They are the first to uh, assume the diadem, as we say. They're the first to become kings, self-made kings. And it is Ptolemy, we think, who follows very soon after. So sometimes attributed to 306, that might be a little early, maybe more about 305 or 304, but certainly within um, within a year or so of the Antigonids. Uh, so that's when he is recognized. And the, the successes themselves recognize each other's sovereignty. So despite the fact that they're going in and out of varying alliances, they are challenging each other's authority in some respects. They are constantly encroaching on each other's territories. Um, but nonetheless, they do recognize each other as kings. And in fact, they continue to even recognize Demetrius as a king well after they're sort of able to finally, um, they, the, Demetrius and the rest of the successors are constantly in conflict as well. So they continue to recognize his sort of uh, royalty even right down to sort of the end of, he ends up in sort of royal captivity under the control of Seleucus, he's forced to surrender to Seleucus. Um, so essentially at this point when Ptolemy is stealing the body, uh, it's sort of a, quite a symbolically important thing to do. And remember I mentioned, you know, the sort of person who holds the former king's body, there's a sort of legitimacy to being able to control that and to be able to bury it or to sort of give it its funeral rights, but um, no, he, I wouldn't say he's acting as a king at this stage. Uh, but I think this plan is formulating. I think Ptolemy is planning on thwarting the ambition of the others, but also making sure that he is uh, recognized as the sole controller of Egypt at that point. It sounded like um, Perdiccas was was killed in, in battle or something that surrounds uh, battle um, in one of your responses earlier. Um, Cleopatra was assassinated. Um, Antagonist, I think in the chronology, Antagonist is still in the picture. Can you speak about what ended up occurring um, with that relationship between Ptolemy and Antagonist? And, and can you lead the dialogue um, chronologically to a point where uh, if it occurs in Ptolemy's life where there's there's 
there's more stable hegemony at this point in time and and if he ends up uh, I think he might have I think he might have said it but but let's cover it if he ends up calling himself like self-proclaiming himself a king yeah, so we have a succession of conflicts which take place over the next few years. So sort of from 323, I mean, really from the point of Alexander's death onwards, we're seeing this continual conflict. So I should mention that our major players here really are uh, the Antigonids. We have Cassander and Lysimachus. These are um, based sort of respectively in Macedonia and Thrace. So they're sort of in, on the Europe side we have ptolemy in egypt of course we have this other person seleucus who would go on to found the seleucid dynasty and he is essentially um his territory and antagonists is kind of a quite fluid but essentially syria babylon and there's sort of conflict over these areas um, in particular as well so we kind of divide these into four diadoc wars and the alliances change over the course of this. So at, at, at originally we have, um, uh, let me consider, one of the significant points which is particularly relevant for Ptolemy is that after Perdiccas's death, he is offered to be the regent. So the re he's offered the regency of the kings. He actually turns this down. And it's kind of interesting that he does this but i think he saw ahead that there was never going to be this idea again that we're going to be able to unite alexander's empire in its entirety it's never going to be like uh, how it was and i think he knew that it would be better to concentrate on egypt with maybe um, securing some of the surrounding areas a bit of a buffer as well to make sure that he could maintain that control very significantly so he actually suggests that um these other two, he gives the regency to um, Python and Aridaeus, and neither of those wield very much power and influence. So he sort of makes sure that one, the regents that are in control are not particularly powerful, prominent people. They're not gonna win a lot of popular support. And he also doesn't accept the role himself. At various points, we have, uh, for example, we have Cassander and Ptolemy against Antigonus. Uh, so that's pretty significant there. And um, at various points, we have Ptolemy and Seleucus acting together. We have some defeats, some losses. Uh, the Ptolemaic forces are defeated pretty uh, conclusively by um, Demetrius's fleet in Cyprus in about, um, this is during the fourth Didoc War, so in about 306 BC. Um, one of the most significant alliances, I would say, and again, this is quite an interesting aspect because it really reflects quite well on maybe, again, Ptolemy's ambition and how the others are feeling about him. So by about 302 BC, the others are very uh, concerned about the ambitions of Antigonus. So Antigonus is really the person who seems to be aiming for continual conquest. He might not have ever really captured the exact same amount of territory as Alexander the Great, but certainly the others are concerned by his uh, power that he's wielding. So the others form a coalition against Antigonus. This includes Cassander, Lysimachus, 
and Seleucus and nominally Ptolemy. Ptolemy is supposed to be involved in this as well, and they have to sort of have this coalition in order to make sure that they can finally put a stop to Antigonus. So this culminates in the Battle of Ipsus, which occurs in 301 BC. This is the battle in which Antigonus is defeated. He is killed on the battlefield, and Demetrius is able to escape, but he's fairly weakened at this point. He has a small band of followers. His garrisons begin to be um, thrown out of various territories along the way. He tries to flee to uh, Athens, for example, when they close their doors to him, saying they're not going to allow him back in, so he loses his support from Athens. Meanwhile, Ptolemy is supposed to have supported the coalition during this time, but what essentially happens is that news is reportedly comes to him that Antigonus had been defeated. Um, oh, sorry, the rather that instead of being defeated, Antigonus had won a victory. So during this, Ptolemy says that he receives this news. This is a false report that Antigonus has been victorious. So he actually, instead of joining the battle and offering his support to his coalition members, these are other generals, he, he returns back to Egypt. He decamps from where he was besieging a particular place, um, and he goes back to Egypt to defend it. Now, this causes a bit of a conflict because he still expects a share in the spoils. They begin dividing up Antigonus's empire. Ptolemy expects a portion of this as well, but uh, they refuse to give it to him because he never actually showed up and he seems to have um, fled back to Egypt. And what's more, there's some accusation that he actually made the whole story up so that he could return and protect his interests. That it wasn't even a false report by the Antigonid side or something like that. It was actually Ptolemy being crafty and deciding to, to return to protect Egypt. Uh, so the other members of the coalition at this point, they assigned Syria to Seleucus. They sort of consider Ptolemy to have not played his role correctly. Um, but this causes a bit of an ongoing uh, conflict and actually conflict between the members of these two dynasties over this particular bit of um, Syria as well. So the conflict continues down for quite a few generations there. Um, so all that to say really, Ptolemy is very keen, if he can, to expand his territories. He does venture into um, Coles, Syria, which is essentially where um, we might consider sort of modern Israel, Palestine, um, Lebanon and sort of southern Syria, so it's that kind of area of the world. Um, but that's it. He is not going to risk his possession in Egypt if, if anything looks like it could threaten it. What an interesting series of events there, Charlotte. So, okay, so he goes back. He's back in Egypt then. Um, what's, what's known after that point in time in the chronology? Uh, so... Some of the interesting things about uh, Ptolemy as a pharaoh of Egypt, as a ruler of Egypt, um, so as we're noting, yeah, by the by, three hundred five at least at the um, maybe three hundred four at the latest, he's recognized as a king. Uh, the others are recognizing him. He funds uh, the arts. He sort of uh, develops Alexandria's capital. He seems to have initiated uh, some coinage developments as well. So during this time, the most or many of the other successes are still use, still using Alexander's coinage. And you might be familiar if you've ever seen any of the Alexander coins. Uh, these tended to, at least the tetradrams, they tended to have a portrait of Heracles 
on one side of the coin and an image of Zeus on the other. So that was a very standard type and uh, the mercenaries in particular liked being paid on this. It was a very um, sort of good standard of coinage and it was very popular. So a lot of them held on to this in sort of memory of Alexander because it was accepted and it sort of showed a bit of continuity between Alexander and those who are now taking over. Uh, Ptolemy is one of those that actually makes a few changes to this fairly typical coin design. So we actually see, um, for example, portraits of Alexander appear in his coins, but then later portraits of Ptolemy as well. And this is kind of unusual because actually at this period of history, we don't see many depictions of living rulers on coinage. It's really only of these um, successes in particular, Demetrius and Ptolemy who do this. There's maybe another coin of the Seleucid dynasty where we could possibly suggest that it's ahead of Seleucus, but it's not very explicit. So a little bit of a debate around whether it's Demetrius or Ptolemy who do this first, but you can imagine this is quite an innovation. So we've gone from having coins which only depict divinities on the sort of obverse or the head side of the coin. And now we are seeing living individuals. Uh, they're wearing a diadem as a symbol of their royal power. And uh, we have them included on the coin. So we sort of see a, a portrait of Ptolemy. And uh, usually on the reverse or the tail side of the uh, coin, we see something rather significant, um, maybe a uh, for Ptolemy's instance, an um, eagle is quite a popular symbol that we see on his coins, possibly in reference to Zeus. Um, but we actually even have a story in our sources that um, suggests that there's a divine connection to Ptolemy having a divine birth as well. So it's not a very common one, but um, there's a suggestion that Ptolemy also had a divine father. So it's again a very popular theme, a sort of way again to, um, I suppose, add some legitimacy to your, your claim to power, which is very important at this time. And so we see Ptolemy replace Alexander's name with his own name on the coin. So instead of having coins of Alexander, uh, we now see coins of Ptolemy. So he's sort of um, making some symbolic changes as well. He's sort of setting the standard for um, how um, these sort of his dynasty is going to rule. Uh, he's also making marriage alliances at this point as well. So uh, it's worth noting that Ptolemy has um, quite a few children. He's had uh, at least two official wives. Um, he had a third wife as well that he married uh, when Alexander decreed that all of his generals were going to marry um, prominent Persian um, noblewomen. So he did have a Persian wife earlier. Um, and so he has quite a few children and what's significant as well is that he was married to a daughter of Antipodes. So it's kind of all taking place during this time where they're sort of seeking to firm up any alliance they can have. So it's very um, prestigious, I suppose, to marry these women from these prominent Macedonian families and make various connections to each other. So we have marriages to Antipodes, uh, and then of course his daughters are later married to various kings as well. So it's kind of interesting to think about, we have these people who are constantly in conflict with one another. Sometimes they're actually at a battle, like a set battle against each other, um, but also they're all related by marriage. So we have, for example, one of Ptolemy's daughters marries Lysimachus, who I mentioned earlier, one of his daughters, 
from another wife, marries Demetrius as well later. So we kind of see kind of an interesting dynamic as well, um, considering all of these generals are and these kings are in conflict with one another. Okay. And in case anyone's uh, wondering and are unsure, and, and I'm wondering, uh, Charlotte, what is a diadem? Uh, a diadem is essentially a, a flat band that is worn around the head. Uh, I guess you would say like a headband. Um, originally it was, we think, a, a piece of cloth, so a ribbon or something like that. Um, and it was just sort of tied around the head symbolically as a sort of emblem of your royalty. Now, later in this period, uh, much later on, of course, this becomes a more obvious crown. Uh, So this is sort of the early precursor to that in in these particular uh, royal families. So if you ever see a portrait of, um, say, Ptolemy, for example, if you have a look at one of the Ptolemaic coins, you will see that uh, they have a sort of flat band around their heads. And this is, of course, the their emblem of royalty. And it's really interesting in particular because Alexander the Great likely wouldn't have had to wear this. There's some reference to him adopting various aspects of um, Persian costume, for example, Persian clothing. He sort of tried to make a bit of a hybrid of Macedonian and Persian custom. Uh, but Alexander himself didn't have to necessarily assert his royal title in the same way that these later kings, these self-made kings had to. So we actually see a real interesting development of a lot of trappings of royalty are very much promoted during this time. So that includes the diadem, uh, royal clothing, the royal wedding becomes more of a significant institution. We see um, that being celebrated on a grander scale. So a lot of the things that we think of as sort of standard behavior for kings and queens and princesses, that kind of thing, these are actually all being trialed by the successors as they try and scrabble to include some legitimacy. We so try and make it look like they are the most kingly of kings and most deserving of this royal power. And um, that's why it's worth noting as well, the, the term Basileus uh, doesn't appear on Alexander's coinage. He didn't need to advertise that he was Alexander the Great, the king, he, this was a given, whereas for the all of the successors, where their names appear on coins, we now see the royal title. So this is a development very much tied to what's happening politically with um, all of these men and their varying, um, you know, maneuvering themselves into power. After the Battle of Epsis, is it believed that there is relative stability at that point in uh, in, in Egypt for to- Ptolemy? Ptolemy, rather? Yes. Uh, I would say that marks to the point where um, there's a pretty clear division at that point of who is in control of what area. Um, that's it. Demetrius does uh, come back. He, well, he makes a comeback. He, he does aim for, again, the recovery of his father's empire. But at that point, really, um, we have relative stability. You know, Ptolemy is very much associated with Egypt, there's a little bit of conflict between himself and Seleucus, but essentially that territory is very stable. Um, same with Seleucus's uh, area. They divide off the territories. Um, Lysimachus gets a portion of the Antigonid Empire as well. Um, but essentially, yeah, we have a pretty clear division between uh, those four kings and uh, Demetrius's unfortunately for them, able to make a bit of a comeback, but really he never actually achieves that ultimate ambition of 
gaining all of control again of all of the empire. He does actually become king of Macedonia. So Cassander um, dies of an illness. His sons take over from him, but they're not particularly strong kings. Demetrius is able to uh, commit yet one more regicide, um, and then he takes over, but he loses Macedonia as well. So at, at each point, he sort of gains something but loses it again. But Ptolemy's control is never seriously threatened in any particular way. He really is. Um, he really was quite uh, strategic, I think, in gaining a hold of Egypt. He was able to defend it, and uh, he never extends his ambition beyond his own reach. He's, he's willing, unlike, I suppose, Demetrius, he's willing to pull back and uh, protect what he has rather than reach ever more for, for something else and maybe not consolidate his control as well as he could have. Do you want to cover then uh, his what occurred for his direct successor, and, we, and that could be one of the spots where we can uh, look at wrapping up. And I do have a more uh, kind of an, an, a, a related but not as chronological uh, closing question after after that. But do you want to cover the, who his direct successor was? Uh, yeah, so uh, probably won't surprise you, but um, all of our Ptolemies essentially are, uh, all of Ptolemy's descendants, male descendants are essentially called Ptolemy. So the next descendant is Ptolemy II Philadelphus, and he becomes um, Ptolemy the first heir and rules Egypt. Um, but it's worth noting that this was not um, his eldest son. So um, he, this is actually the son of his second wife, uh, Berenike, and his, who was a cousin of his first or his first Macedonian wife, I should say, who had another Ptolemy. So just to make things confusing, he has two prominent sons um, called Ptolemy and uh, both of course were sort of jostling for power. Um, there seems to have been some sort of struggle and it seems that he um, maybe repudiated his first wife, Eurydice there, and um, therefore promoted his second child or second son um, as his heir. Um, he does declare him to be his co-king uh, or co-regent, perhaps, I think is um, usually how we view it at this stage. Um, so in about 284 BC, um, Ptolemy II is um, sort of acknowledged by uh, Ptolemy I as his successor. And we actually see a bit of a trend for co-kingship during this time, and I think that is partly a reflection on um, how volatile these succession crises have been. So we've seen, you know, right from the death of Alexander, without having a firm king in place, we have seen, you know, constant warfare, constant jostling for control. So I think some of this co-regency or co-kingship has been, uh, they were trialing this to um, essentially alleviate this issue, the succession problem. Um, so he's sort of accepted there um, and he becomes, the king by the time that Ptolemy the first dies, so 282, and he's one of our few successors that actually um, likely died of old age. I think one of our sources suggests that maybe there is um, another assassination attempt, but we tend to think that actually Ptolemy was maybe around age 85, maybe 84, roughly, depending on when we take his birthday from. So uh, we think he actually did just succumb to old age, so unlike many of our other uh, characters that we've talked about. Um, but there's this continual bit of a fallout between Ptolemy II and Ptolemy um, Karamus, is how he's usually referred to, the other Ptolemy. There's a bit of a conflict between those two. And um, 
Kiranos eventually goes to get support from Lysimachus and sort of conflict continues there um, for quite some time. Uh, but essentially, uh, Ptolemy II is able to hold on to his power and um, yeah, we, we see this sort of um, subsequent succession through the dynasty. Um, and yeah, they're, they're able to hold on to their power despite yeah, many other outside forces that eventually, you know, cause further conflict for them. Your um, past supervisor um, for, for your PhD, uh, Dr. Pat Wheatley, and also uh, you wrote a book with him, uh, Demetrius the Besieger, as you know, has been on the show, and we covered in the past Alexander III of Macedon. Uh, that was published on June 27th, 2021. Um, one of the things we uh, got into as a, kind of a side conversation was um, if, um, if, if Pat would basically have coffee with Alexander's, where we ended up in the conversation and, and right, in that, right in that kind of dialogue if Alexander was alive today. So, so if, if, if um, we're obviously talking hypothetically here, right? If, if you had an opportunity to meet Ptolemy and you sat, sat down um, for a coffee, what's one question that you'd be burning to ask uh, Ptolemy in that conversation? Ah, that is a tricky one, but I think I would, I would just love to get my hands on the first draft of his history that he's writing on Alexander. We have so many questions about, so I suppose it's not a one specific question, but um, we, there's so much scholarship around trying to infer what Ptolemy was doing and saying and thinking through the sort of fragments that we have of his work through other authors. And I would I would love to read the first draft of that as Ptolemy was writing things down and see, see if some of our speculation is um, is accurate, like we, we hope it is, and also um, just to sort of maybe see the rest of his account and, and see the rest of it. So I really do lament the loss of that. I think it would have been um, fantastic to have an eyewitness account to Alexander's campaign. I think it would have been very revealing both about maybe Alexander, but also Ptolemy himself. Um, so I would have liked to have seen that. And I would have liked to um, maybe, maybe um, yeah, understand a little bit more about the, these dynamics. Of course, it always strikes me that these men uh, grew up together in many ways, or at least knew each other from a very young age. They had campaigned together um, on the same side for so many years and um, had been, you know, united for the same cause under Alexander and really supported him. And I, I would love to know um, how they felt about the way that their relationships changed from, you know, sort of maybe having, you know, these, these friendships that now become conflict and um, you know, in quite, quite significant conflict as well, you know, where now they turn on each other. One of our sources de describes this as, as them sort of dividing up the, the sort of corpse of Alexander's empire, the great carcass of, of the empire, and um, yeah, it's just kind of this viciousness that comes through. Would really like to know how they felt about that, if there was any sort of reflection on, on that aspect of, of how things changed, and why they couldn't ever work together. Um, yeah, it's very interesting mm. to me, that dynamic. Mm. Okay, Charlotte, it is always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show again. No problem. Anytime. Thank you so much. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode and also a moment ago, I'll mention it again, that Dr. Dunn co-authored is entitled Demetrius the Besieger. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Charlotte and everybody listening, as always... Wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now.
Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.